Hello everyone and welcome to the February 9th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Selective publication is the legal process used by an appellate court to decide whether a decision is to be published or not published in an official reporter. Unpublished opinions are those decisions of courts that are not available for citation as precedent. Every day, lawyers engaging in legal research come across that perfect case that makes that key point, only to realize that the case is unpublished. California Rules of Court provides that any decision that is not certified for publication must not be cited or relied on by a court or a party in any other action. However, the WCAB does not have an equivalent rule. Nonetheless, published opinions are clearly controlling law. The Court of Appeal decision reported last month in Ogden Entertainment Services versus the WCAB answers the question of when is an expedited hearing too expedited. It also makes clear the mandate that due process of law protections are alive and well at the WCAB. The case was initially unpublished. However, attorney Tim Morgan at Floyd, Scarron & Kelly filed a petition to have the case published, which was just granted, and the case is now fully citable law as precedent. In that case, Christian von Ritzoff sustained injuries while working as a banquet server in 1996. Ritzoff has been, rep has been representing himself since 1998. Orthopedic injuries were admitted and psychiatric injury denied. At the 2006 expedited hearing, the defendant began to cross-examine him. However, the WCJ terminated cross-examination over the defendant's objection and even though the defendant had not finished because of alleged time constraints arising from the expedited nature of the hearing. The WCAG, the WCJ also noted that the videotape the defendant sought to have admitted was more appropriate for later cross-examination rather than at this stage of the proceedings and would not allow it. Nonetheless, despite not having a full hearing, the WCJ found Ritzoff temporarily totally disabled from a psychiatric injury. The WCAB denied reconsideration of this order. Three more hearings followed. The first two focused on whether Ritzhoff was psychiatrically permanent and stationary and thus no longer entitled to TTD. The third hearing ended with the finding that Ritzhoff was 100% disabled. Ritzoff refused to be cross-examined at all three of these hearings. The Court of Appeal reversed and remanded in the now-published case. The Court noted that for two centuries, the policy of the Anglo-American system of evidence has been to regard the necessity of cross-examination as a vital feature of the law. Cross-examination of witnesses is nothing less than one of the fundamental guarantees of a fair trial, or as in this case, a fair hearing. There is no doubt that the right of cross-examination is guaranteed to the parties in workers' compensation proceedings. The importance of cross-examination as a means of testing and attacking the credibility of a witness is undiminished in the modern era. Indeed, the Court of Appeal unraveled the case to the beginning. The Appeals Board's view 
that the defense should have sought review of its decision regarding cross-examination following the first and second hearings ignores the plain fact these were not final decisions of the appeals board and thus were not reviewable in this court under the aegis of a writ of review. The Court of Appeal ruled that the applicability of bunkhouse rule to voluntary rental housing is a triable issue of fact for the jury to decide and is not the proper subject of a summary judgment. This is what happened in the case of Wright versus the State of California. Monty Wright began working at San Quentin as a correctional officer in 1997. The following year, he moved into a state-owned rental unit within the gated area of the San Quentin grounds. Living there was voluntary on Wright's part. It was not a condition of his employment with the state and he paid market rate rent, receiving no discount or other employment benefit for living on the property. Wright's original lease for the unit required that he obtain a broad policy of comprehensive coverage of public liability insurance, naming the state as the insured. It also contained an indemnity clause. Wright was injured when he fell in the course of his walk from his home to his actual place of work. Wright filed a claim for workers' compensation benefits for injuries resulting from the fall, and in July 2012, he went on early disability retirement. He also filed suit against the state asserting one cause of action for premises liability alleging there was a defectively constructed and dangerously maintained stair. The state moved for summary judgment on the ground that Wright's claim was barred by the workers' compensation exclusive remedy rule, and the motion was granted and the case was dismissed. The Court of Appeal reversed and remanded in the published case of Wright versus the State of California. The bunkhouse rule dates back to the 1920s, with the earliest mention found in Associated Oil Company versus the Industrial Accident Commission. The Supreme Court held that the circumstances did not trigger the employment relationship because the, the employee fell from the porch on a Sunday at a time when not at work and he was neither required to work nor to be on the premises. Additionally, he had a choice of residing in a nearby town but opted to reside in the more convenient lodging provided by his employer. Since 1924, a number of cases have addressed the bunkhouse rule, analyzing its application under a variety of circumstances. Applying the case authorities on the bunkhouse rule to the facts of this case demonstrates at the least a triable issue of material fact, whether Wright was acting in the course of his employment at the time he was injured. Wright lived on the San Quentin grounds purely voluntarily. It was not required by his employment contract, nor was it necessary for him to live there. Wright paid market rate for the rental, and the rental was not a benefit of his employment. Further, there was no evidence that Wright was ever on call or performed any work out of his rental unit. The summary judgment was reversed. The jury should consider the application of the bunkhouse rule. A significant panel decision held that a stipulation binds the employer to use of a non-MPN physician. Here is what happened in the, state of Sh the case of Shaw versus Steve's Automotive. In 2001, Richard Shaw sustained injury while working as a tow truck driver, causing 65% permanent disability and a need for future medical treatment. 
At the time of his award, Jacob Rabinovich, MD, was his non-MPN primary treating physician. Dr. Rabinovich continued to serve as his PTP in the following years and was compensated by the defendant. The defendant's MPN was approved by the administrative director in 2011 and the MPN was implemented in 2012. However, defendant did not promptly seek to transfer applicant's care into its MPN. Instead, as documented in the August 2012 pretrial conference statement, defendant stipulated in writing to Dr. Rabinovich's as, to Dr. Rabinovich as applicant's primary treating physician. There was no indication of any issue regarding the transfer of applicant's care into the MPN noted on the record. Applicant continued to treat with Dr. Rabinovich pursuant to defendant's stipulation following the 2012 pretrial conference until the following year. In 2013, defendant sent applicant letters concerning his transfer into the MPN. No change in applicant's condition or circumstances was identified by defendant as the reason. Applicant continued to treat with Dr. Rabinovich, and a dispute arose over defendant's refusal to authorize medical treatment with him. The WCJ found that defendant properly transferred applicant's future medical care into the medical provider network and that applicant was to receive further medical care from a physician chosen within the network. After reconsideration, the WCAB reversed in the significant panel decision. It ruled that stipulations made at a MSC are binding and a party may not withdraw from such a stipulation except upon a showing of good cause. Moreover, AD rules expressly recognizes that an employer or insurer may authorize treatment by a provider outside of its MPN. Defendant's stipulation of Dr. Rabinovich as applicant's treating physician served as its authorization for applicant to treat outside the MPN as described in AD Rule 9797.9a because defendant's MPN was already implemented at that time. Defendant has made no showing of a change in case law or judicial interpretation of a statute that would provide good cause to relieve it from its stipulation. The WCAB panel went on to note that an efficacious physician-patient relationship is an ingredient aiding in the success of medical treatment. Commissioner Deidre Lowe dissented from the opinion. She concluded in the dissent that defendant properly acted to transfer applicant into its MPN in conformity with applicable statutes and regulations. There is no need for a defendant to show good cause or a change in condition or circumstances to justify the transfer of an injured worker's medical treatment into an MPN. They said that the decision of the WCJ should be affirmed. The Court of Appeal ruled that the immigration status of an injured worker is irrelevant in his Superior Court civil trial. Here is what happened in the case of Velasquez versus Centrum Incorporated DBA Advanced Biotech. In 2003, Wilfredo Velasquez started working at Gold Coast, a company that made food flavorings. He worked with a product known as diacetyl in both closed and open bags and containers throughout the company's facility. He breathed diacetyl particles while using a sprayer to mix diacetyl into batches of liquid and dry flavorings and while hand pouring the compound into mixes. 
Advanced Biotech supplied roughly 80% of the diacetyl that Gold Coast used in its facility. Advanced attached material safety data sheets that warned that diacetyl was harmful by in inhalation, but did not include specific warnings about the risks of any particular diseases. Advanced warnings were consistent with flavorings industry practices at the time. There were no, fe no federal regulations governing, exp governing exposure limits for diacetyl, and Cal-OSHA did not issue exposure limits for diacetyl until 2010. Even by the time of trial in 2012, the Federal Drug Administration continued to classif classify diacetyl as generally safe. Nonetheless, Velasquez developed symptoms including shortness of breath. He was first diagnosed in 2006 with bronchiolitis obliterans, a rare form of lung disease which is usually progressive and fatal. He received workers' compensation benefits and needs a lung transplant in the future. In 2007, Velasquez filed a, f a civil complaint for personal injuries against the diacetyl manufacturers and distributors. Prior to trial, Velasquez filed a motion in limine to preclude advanced from presenting any evidence or making any comment about his citizenship or immigration status or showing that he had used falsified documents when applying for employment. The defendants opposed the motion on the theory that since Velasquez claimed to be a lung transplant candidate, his candidacy would be ruled out because of his immigration status. A UCLA physician testified before trial that immigration status can be discussed in the decision-making process for lung, trans lung transplant candidacy. For this reason, the trial court denied the in limine motion to keep out immigration status evidence. In making its ruling, the court acknowledged that evidence of immigration status was highly, highly prejudicial, but that its probative value outweighed the prejudice. Some jurors and alternate jurors admitted during jury selection that the information about immigration status would have some influence on them, and they were dismissed. After the ruling and during the trial, the UCLA physician changed his testimony, indicating that there was a new policy that residency and immigration status would no longer be considered when making decisions on transplant approvals. But at this point, it was too late. The jury had already been involved in the immigration dispute. Motions for mistrial by the injured worker were overruled. The jury returned a special verdict that supported the trial court granting advanced motions motion for non-suit on Velasquez's common law negligence theory. Velasquez appealed, and the Court of Appeal reversed the trial court in the published case. When an undocumented immigrant files a personal injury action but does not claim damages for lost earnings or earnings capacity, evidence of his or her immigration status is irrelevant. Immigration status has no tendency to prove or disprove any fact material to the issue of liability. Immigration status has no tendency to prove or disprove any fact material to the determination of past special damages such as past medical bills up to the date of the trial. Nor is evidence of immigration status relevant to general damages as it does not prove or disprove what the reasonable amount of money is needed to compensate the plaintiff for past and future pain and suffering.
Further, immigration status alone has no tendency to prove or disprove any fact material to the issue of a party's credibility. The trial court abused its discretion in determining Velasquez's immigration status was admissible evidence and the jury should not have been informed of it. California and in multiple other jurisdictions have recognized the strong danger of prejudice attendant with the disclosure of a party's status as an undocumented immigrant. The trial court should have declared a mistrial. And now our fraud report. Anthem is the nation's second largest health insurer, operating Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans in 14 states, including California. Anthem was the target of a very sophisticated external cyber attack, perhaps the biggest in U.S. history. These attackers have obtained personal information from up to 80 million members. The information includes names, birthdays, medical IDs, social security numbers, street addresses, email addresses, and employment information. No information is available about the status of any information in its database arising out of workers' compensation MPN services. Once the attack was discovered, Anthem immediately contacted the FBI and began fully cooperating with their investigation. Anthem has also retained one of the world's leading cybersecurity firms to evaluate its systems. Anthem will individually notify current and former members whose information has been accessed. It will also provide credit monitoring and identity protection services free of charge. Anthem created a dedicated website, www.anthemfacts.com, where members can access information about the breach. FBI officials have appeared at a number of industry conferences urging corporate executives to promptly report breaches and, when possible, share information about the breach with competitors. The decision by Anthem to bring in the FBI and go public with the breach is the kind of move that law enforcement officials have been encouraging. Experts said the information was vulnerable because Anthem did not take steps like protecting the data in its computers through encryption, in the same way it protected medical information that was sent or shared outside the database. Security specialists say healthcare co companies are behind other industries in protecting sensitive personal information. Statistics maintained by the federal government say there have been 740 major healthcare breaches affecting 29 million people over the last five years. Yet the health industry has not previously experienced the large-scale breaches that have plagued retailers like Target and Home Depot. Information that health providers maintain about consumers is more valuable on the black market than the credit card information that is often stolen from a retailer. A full set of medical information on a person can sell for $40 to $50 on the street. By contrast, a credit card number is often worth only four or five dollars. This explains why criminal attacks on healthcare organizations increased 100 percent between 2009 and 2013. And in medical news, currently doctors have to throw away more than 80 percent of donated tissue used for joint replacements because the tissue does not survive long enough to be transplanted. Now, University of Missouri School of Medicine researchers have developed a new technology that more than doubles the life of the tissue. 
Researchers call this result a game changer. This will allow surgeons to provide a more natural joint repair option for patients. The technology, called the Missouri Osteochondral Allograft Preservation System, or MOPS, more than doubles the storage life of bone and cartilage grafts from organ donors. In traditional preservation methods, donated tissue, tissues are stored within a medical-grade refrigeration unit in sealed bags filled with a standard preservation solution. MOPS utilizes a new developed preservation solution and special containers designed by the research team that allows the tissue, tissues to be stored at room temperature. Time is a serious factor when it comes to utilizing donated tissue for joint repairs. The traditional preservation approach allows about 28 days after obtaining the grafts from organ donors before the tissues are no longer useful. Most of this 28-day window is used for testing the tissues to ensure they are, are safe for use. This decreases the opportunity to identify an appropriate recipient, schedule surgery, and get the graft to the surgeon for implantation. Donor tissue grafts have been used for many years as a way to fill in damaged areas of a joint as an alternative to removing bone and implanting metal and plastic components. The body accepts bone and cartilage grafts without the need for anti-rejection drugs and the donor tissue becomes part of the joint. However, the method of preserving the grafts themselves has limited the amounts of quality donor tissue available to surgeons. And in regulatory news, state fund filed for a 9% increase in premium that will apply to new and renewal workers' compensation policies effective April 1. Details of the rate filing include an approximate 5% increase to policy tiers A and B, the elimination of the group insurance discount, a 25 increase in minimum premiums, a 6.5% and 4.8% increase to the Los Angeles County and Southern California area territory factors, respectfully, respectively, the schedule rating threshold will move from $10,000 in base premium to $25,000. The state fund says there are several reasons for this rate increase. The latest reports from the WCIRB show that the rate of California workers filing lost time workers' compensation claims is at its highest level in 10 years. WCIRB shows the rate of claims in California rose 0.9% in the first nine months of 2014, and the trend is driven by the experience in Southern California. In 2013, SCIF introduced a new tiered rating plan that it says has greatly improved its ability to price individual risks and serve more California employers. Part of this rate plan also reflects an adjustment to its pricing model, which will continue to evolve over time. In addition to its tiered pricing structure, it will continue to offer schedule rating, claims-free credit, and premium discounts to underwrite individual accounts. Following a jury public hearing and a review of comments from previous 15-day public comment periods, the, WD, the DWC has made revisions to its copy service fee schedule regulations. Members of the public are invited to present further written comments regarding the proposed modifications until 5 p.m. on Friday, February 13th. 
Under the new proposed revisions, bills, bills must now include the county of registration of professional photocopier certificates so that professional photocopier status can be verified more easily. 30-day requests from injured workers for employer or claims records must be written. Transcript fees have been reduced from $150 to $100 for transcripts up to 33 pages. And DWC fees for CDs of electronic records have been eliminated. The notice and text of the regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.